Um, we are in the midst of a two-part, a two-part series on suffering, on what we're going to do in suffering. This two-part series is going to turn into a four-part series because I was going to conclude this week, which would have been part three, but I'm not going to conclude this week. I'm going to conclude next week uh, just because there is much good stuff that I would like to um, share from God's Word uh, with regard to what we do, what do I do in the midst of my suffering. So as we will typically do, let's uh, just, we'll go ahead and recap here uh, where we were two weeks ago. We were talking about why are we in this place? Why, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there uh, feelings of hopelessness? Why are there these battles of anxieties that we fight? And it's right there on the paper. Sin. Uh, we live in a, a fallen world. God did not create the world fallen. God created the world good. Not only good, but very good. And Adam and Eve had perfect communion with the living God in the garden until sin came. And when sin came, devastation came. Not only in their relationship between them and God, uh, but devastation came to the entire cosmos as death entered the world. Uh, brokenness uh, in humanity. Uh, the relationship between husband and wife was now messed up. And you see that right off the bat as they start blaming each other for the fall. But not only in their relationship with one another, but the relationship with in all of humanity as you see Murder in the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Uh, brother kills brother there. But man is also messed up because man doesn't understand himself anymore. Uh, the heart is desperately wicked and deceptive above all things. And who can understand it really but the living God? And so it makes sense to us that by myself, I really can't understand myself. Especially if I, if I struggle with my identity, I struggle with uh, my relationship with my wife. I don't, but, but if I did, and we do at times. Um, I need something to orient me properly. As a, as a pilot, I've used this analogy before. When I am in the cockpit and I am in the clouds, I cannot tell which way is up by my feelings. What I think lies to me. My airplane could be in a bank, and as long as, there, if, as, long as I'm pulling on it, and my, my bum feels one G, one force of gravity on it, you pull enough, it feels like you're sitting upright, but you're not. And you could roll yourself all the way and feel very comfortable right until you hit the ground. And never know it. Unless you look at what we call an attitude indicator. Okay, the attitude indicator, it's that round ball, you've probably seen it. On the bottom, it's kind of dark. And on the top, it's blue, and there's lines for how many degrees, nose high or low you are. And there's a little airplane in there. And this thing is on a gyro. And so if you bank the airplane, the world will move. And you can see on your attitude indicator that you are in bank. You may not feel it, but this is telling you the truth. And so... In this world, we need something to tell us the truth. And if we're all broken, then trusting each other is kind of silly. And so we need something on the outside to orient us properly. And that is why we give thanks and praise that God has provided us his word through which we might know him. So... The first lesson that we had together was a downer. It was a, it was a doozy of a downer because it was just 
laying out that we are all going to be miserable. At some point, you are going to find yourself in darkness. Uh, it could be from the death of a friend. Um, it could be from a lost job. It could be from a broken relationship. I mean, we, we listed many things. It could be looking at the politics of this country or the politics of the world. Uh, death, devastation, hurricanes. Could be hurricanes. Could, we were talking, joking about Katrina earlier. Um, and, I mean, and there are some things we have no control over. You have no control over that shadow that will show up on your x-ray. For the most part. And when we find ourselves in those dark times, we look at things last week to which we might turn that will not bring us a solution two weeks ago. Um, Things that will kind of mask the pain. What were some of the things that we would look to to mask the pain? Booze, yeah. Let's, Let's bury it in booze. Entertainment, let's binge, you know. What's that? You know, Lost in Space is about to be released. We're going to binge on Lost in Space over Christmas because Christmas is miserable. What else? Okay, we might look for spiritual assistance from people who are from things that are going to lead us astray. From things that are going to lead us astray. And I, I'm going to throw this out there because I don't, I don't we, got, we got three new guests here. And in God's word throughout, throughout the Bible, the Bible describes itself as God's word. Uh, inspired and inerrant. Uh, all things, all scripture... Paul writes to Timothy, he says, all scripture, all of the Bible, is God-breathed. means God guided the men who wrote this. David, I believe it was David in Psalm 119, wrote the entirety of your word is truth. The entirety of your word is truth. That's an audacious claim. So either it is true... And if it is true, then it is true in all of it. Or if it's false, then the whole thing becomes suspect. And you have to go, well, is it really just a good book? But that's kind of a wacky claim. And so, I mean, that's a a whole whole other topic. But this is why we cling to this as God's word. And you'll you'll see some other things as, as we unfold this today. So there are some places I will wrongly turn. If it doesn't jive, if it doesn't coincide with my attitude indicator, then I can't trust it. I mean, if it's saying something in contradiction to the word of God, I got to go, whoa, whoa. I don't know if that's the way that I want to go. So false teachers. Athletics, I'm going to just run it off or I'm going to just throw more weight there to cover this. Sex, relationships, extramarital relationships, uh, whatever. Sab it. Sab your soul. So there are things both material and immaterial, things spiritual, false teachers, psychologists, psychology, And they fail because they mask the symptom. They don't get to the root of your misery. So where must I turn? And and again, we touched on this two weeks ago. We have to turn to what we, we call, we turn to the light. Jesus Christ in John chapter 8, verse 12, said, I am the light of the world. Let me get there. Don't misquote it. 
I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you turn in your Bible over to Luke chapter 1, this is the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah was John the Baptist's dad. And he was struck mute for, uh, for the... Large, for a large extent of Elizabeth's pregnancy, for doubting that his barren wife was going to have a son. And in once his tongue is loosed and he begins to prophesy about the glory of the God of Israel and what his son was going to do, he also spoke of what uh, the Messiah was going to do. Look in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 76. It says, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet in the way of peace. So absolutely, Jesus Christ as the light, he who follows me will not walk in darkness. We see that there is redemption. There is a proper orienting or a reorienting of man's broken relationship with the living God from the fall way back in Genesis chapter 3. It is through the finished work of Jesus Christ that that relationship is restored. But not only that, he, he goes beyond that in this prophecy. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The prosperity gospel is a sham. It is a sham. Nowhere does scripture promise us wealth and health in this life. Anybody who has ever proclaimed the prosperity gospel either has died or will die. That's that's a road to end you can't get away from. But... God does promise us something. Well, that's where we're going today. What does God promise us when we are in the midst of darkness? Because we saw great men of the faith in scripture, in misery. They were in misery. Paul, in his very last letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he's in misery. He is in a hellish prison in Rome, waiting to be executed. He's cold, and he's alone, and it's dark. But he has a hope for something great. He has a hope for something great. So in our darkness, when we are in darkness, we must turn toward the source of light. I mentioned Psalm 119 earlier, which declares the entirety of your word is truth. In Psalm 119, verse 160. But Psalm 119 also says, and Psalm 119 is a great psalm because every verse almost deals with God's word and the glory of God's word. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path in this life now. And in verse 130 of that same song, 
It says, the unfolding of your words gives light. That's what we're doing right now. We are opening God's word. We are opening it together. It gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And so when I am in darkness, really, why would I not want to turn on the light? Why would I not want to turn to the light? Okay, so that's, that's bullet one there. That's what we've been, where we've been in the last couple of weeks. So let's today, as, as we start out, what am I feeling? What are, what are these emotions that I am feeling? Let's start, let's start out with feelings and emotions, okay? Um, what, does, what, will, what will you hear in the world today about feelings? About your feelings. <clears throat> I mean, in a sense that it's true. I mean, you touch something that's hot, you're feeling. I'm not talking our tactile feelings. I'm not talking, oh, that's cold, oh, that's rough. I'm talking my heart, my emotions. Good distinction, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's God's word say? Yeah. Ah. Uh, you know, does it, have you ever had an enemy or a, somebody you didn't like very much who? Who biffed really bad? Face planted. Well, that was terrible. You know, that's on a small scale, or you hear something bad comes to them. They're involved in bad dealings, and those bad dealings go really south, and you're. Does God call us to gloat? and the demise of the wicked. No. No. How, what should be my attitude toward my enemies? Oh. So that's not dancing when they... Oh, yeah. So my feelings like the rest of me may be broken. I mean, if, if my body is a mess, you know, if my back is completely shot, you know, I, I just think of some of the maladies in our church, you know, the, the, the kidney stone factory, um, you know, the vision, the heart issues, the hell, knee replacements, hip replacements. Our body is going... If my physical body is going that way, what makes me think my emotions are spot on and are a great attitude indicator? Have any of you ever felt your emotions change in a moment? Rightly? Sometimes rightly, sometimes justly, sometimes completely wrong. Married. Okay. Married people, you don't have to raise your hands. But has your spouse ever done anything little? But that little thing just brings in the dark storm clouds almost with a supernatural speed. And you just like. And your good mood is just gone, gone. Anger. What's God's word say about anger? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So the impression there is that there is an acceptable anger. 
And we do see that in Scripture. What else does it say? Okay, in your anger, do not sin. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, yeah. And Paul to both the Colossians and the Ephesians, so you get two barrels full, he tells them to put away all, put, but now you must put them all away. This is Colossians 3.8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put away them all. Anger, wrath, malice. Okay. Colossians 3.8. So our anger is typically not good. Now, we do know, God, I mean, where do our feelings come from? They're God-given. They're God-given, so they are good. They are good. We see God exercising emotions throughout Scripture. God rejoicing, God being angry. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, or sorry, chapter 3, we see there is a time for everything under heaven. But again, we understand that our feelings, and we must understand by the authority of God's word, that our feelings are broken too. And so we've got to be wise when we assess our feelings. So let's talk about the things that wear us down, these feelings that we deal with. First one we're going to talk about is grief. Is grief okay? How do you know? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. Shortest book in scripture. You want a scripture memory? Take that one. Time to laugh and a time to weep. We are commanded in Romans chapter 12 to weep with those who weep. So yes. So is there a proper season of mourning? Yes. If somebody near you dies, should you be, oh, you know, I'm okay. Life's good. Now, praise God. He had a, or is it okay to weep and mourn? Yes. Israel mourned for Aaron, Aaron the high priest, for 30 days. For 30 days, Israel mourned. 30 days. And all, everything was better after that, right? So, when somebody near, near you dies, you should mourn for 30 days and then no more. No, it's absurd. However, it does point to the fact that we do have to get on with life. If I, if Tracy dies and I'm just sitting in the middle of my living room floor for the next year, I would like to hope that somebody would knock on my door and come and pick me up and say, you got to go back to work. You got daughters you got to care for. You got a church to labor in here. Does that mean that in the future, even though I move on, that I will never feel sorrow or pain ever again? No. These, these, are, these are good. These are good. My dad's been gone for... Thank you. 17 years. My mom, five years. There are times you just go, oh. Miss them. Grief. So, be encouraged. I mean, if you are in a period of grief, go, that's okay. 
Probably. Are there things you probably shouldn't grieve about? That that adulterous relationship was broken off? Okay, how about you grieve for your sin and not that relationship? Okay, so there are some bad things to probably grieve about. Um, any questions or comments on grief? Hopelessness. Is this okay to feel hopeless? Okay, so twist my words. Re- reorder my words. David felt hopeless. Okay, so, but is that okay then to be hopeless? Yes, because he's a man of God. He's a good example on what not to do and how we go about our hopelessness. Okay. That passage we read, I think, that week one, something about the apostles beginning to despair even of life itself. Yes. Paul, we despaired even of life itself. Ah. But is that hopelessness? There's a line in Anna Green Gables from the sister's <laughs> <laughs> Hopelessness is to turn their back on God. So, yes. Okay. Paul tells the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Okay. Are you going to feel hopeless in this world? It's a yes. 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 Are you... I was going to say it's also an example of not trusting our feelings. As a believer, we have an ultimate hope. It's just very easy to lose sight of that when you're in the midst of suffering. I can't see. There is no end. I am in such a pit, I can never get out of here I have sinned so grievously that God can't forgive my sin where are my eyes on me if I say there is a sin that I have committed that God can't forgive, I have made myself God. I am omnipotent. He is impotent. Isaiah 43. Turn to Isaiah 43 with me. This will be one we come back to next week. This is, man, this is one. This. Forty-three verses one through four. Would somebody read that for me, please? But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, Seba as in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Wow. God says, 
When you pass through the waters, I will get you out of the waters. No, it doesn't say that. Uh, When you're through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Is he going to put the fire out? No. What does God promise? He is with us. He is with us. Does God do anything arbitrarily, capriciously, on a whim? Or is everything God does, allows, permits, purposeful? Okay, how do you know this? Because that's what God's word says. All things work together for good. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean it's going to be good, but all things work together for good. And it may not be my good. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's kind of a twisted lie. You'll hear it's going to be for your good. Mm-mm. Not necessarily. It may may be for your demise and your destruction. And it may be for good on the other side, but not necessarily here. But what a passage. A promise from God for us that when we are in the midst of this darkness, I am not going to leave you. That we know that there is an end. By end, I don't mean a conclusion of the matter. I mean a purpose for it. And so we can have hope. We set our mind on things above. Colossians 1, 2, and 3. Colossians 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. We set our minds on things above, not on things on this world. We have a heavenly focus. So hopelessness. Are you going to feel it? Yes. Is it good? No. If I am hopeless, I am looking at the monsters and not the God who created them. Guilt. Why do we feel guilty? Because we are. Because I am. Sometimes? Sometimes. sometimes. Because we are. Because I am. Why do we feel guilty? Because we know the difference between right and wrong. Okay. Can I feel guilty wrongly? Yes. Why would I ever feel guilty wrongly? Yes. Somebody has made you feel you have done something wrong when in fact you haven't. The world system and God's system are at odds. So the world is going to make you feel like you have done a bad thing. And so God has given each person this conscience kind of as a a trigger warning. But our conscience needs to be properly oriented to up and down. And properly informed, or my conscience is going to be skewed. So we feel guilty. We should feel guilty. We should feel guilty when we have done something wrong. Why don't I always feel guilty when I've done something wrong? Also, 
Our conscience becomes seared. I wish I, I, one of the things they tell you as an instructor, never ask your student a question you can't answer. I just did. Should have had this. There's a, a verse, it's a, I'll, I'll go with what the writer of Hebrews does. The writer of Hebrews says, it says somewhere in scripture, so I'm going to go with that too. <laughs> um, that our, we sear our conscience. Why? By continually ignoring it. By improperly informing it. And continuing in our sin. We squelch the Holy Spirit who works in us with our conscience, with the power of God's word to keep us properly informed. And so when we do wrong, if we are in a good relationship with God, one of the things he will do is he is going to make you feel crummy. Okay, and you go, well, that's, that's a drag. Yeah, it is. Turn to Psalm 32. We're fast approaching this psalm on our studies on Wednesday night as we're going through the psalms. David gives a great picture here in Psalm 32 of what it is like when the conscience is firing all cannons against your soul. Somebody read uh, Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. No wacky names, I promise. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Salah. Wow. Dude. What he's talking about is his sin with Bathsheba. This is a psalm about his sin with Bathsheba. And when he kept silent, there is a year that is not spoken of in Scripture, and it is the year that Saul, or the, the baby that dies that Bathsheba is carrying. You don't read about David's life there. It just simply goes from... David took Bathsheba to, she was pregnant, killed Uriah, and then Nathan confronts David. After the child is born. The child is born. How, long, how old is the child? Don't know. But in these Psalms, after Nathan confronts David, David reveals to us that during that year, he was not well. That God was hammering him through his conscience there. And when our conscience works against us, the next, what it's trying to get you to do is confess. Verse 5 I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That is, that is a promise of the living God. Um, we turn from our darkness into the light. There's a passage we've looked at often here about guilt, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a great section on guilt. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, probably go from verse 8 to uh, verse 12. I'll pick up in verse 9 here. As it is, I rejoice, 2 Corinthians verse seven, verse, chapter 7, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It leads to wholeness and restoration. That's what godly guilt does. God's intention is not to crush you. God's intention is not to destroy you. God's intention is to bring you back. This is the reason we're in misery because you messed up. 
And God wants you to confess that, agree with him. Yes, Lord, I messed up. Good, thank you, child. Come to me and let us walk in righteousness and holiness. That's godly guilt. Look at the end of verse 10. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Satan wants you destroyed. He's a liar and a cheat. He's a murderer from the beginning. Jesus' words about Satan. He wants every good thing bad. He wants you to be miserable and in agony and to wallow in that. Here, let me, let me season that up for you so that you feel even worse. So as saints, I confess my sin. I'm in agony over my sin. I return to the living God. I still am in agony over my sin. I return to God. What do I do? How can you forgive me, Lord? believe him there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the penalty is paid you cannot you never could Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for every sin that you committed will ever commit that anyone has ever committed. The penalty is paid. There is therefore now no condemnation. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And so what do I do? I move on. I believe him. I believe him. And, oh, I praise him and I thank him. Oh, God, thank you. I am not going to let Satan continue to rub my nose in this because he will. Should you learn from it? Yes. Learn your lessons. Might there be retribution? Yeah, you might be imprisoned for what you did. Praise God. You might be executed for what you did. Praise God. But you can go to the guillotine a free man. Charles Darnay. No. Tell two cities. Name's gone. Sydney. Sydney. Sydney Carton. You can go to the guillotine a free man. Beautiful. We must accept what? We must accept the truth. You must believe the truth. If it is true, is it true that there is therefore now no condemnation? Yes. So believe it and move on. Make restitution if necessary. Guilt, anger, bitterness, wrath, malice. We already said put them all away. Put them all away. Is there a place for them? Yeah. But the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Should, you, should there be times where you are indignant about injustice in the world? Yes. Please be. Please. But if you act in that indignation, you will likely be a train wreck. So acting in our wrath and malice is, is going to lead to issues. And that's why Paul in Colossians and Ephesians tells them to put all of that away. Put that away. I have a question. Please. Um, you've kind of glommed all these together. Yes. And we know we feel all these things at yes. different times. But... 
some of these, is is it ever right to feel that way? I know we can have a righteous anger, but it, is it ever right to have malice? Or, I mean, Jesus talks about hatred, and that being like committing murder in your heart. Raka. Bitterness. Are those things, is there ever a time to feel those things that it's in a right way? If... If somebody has wronged me, if somebody... Now, this is an individual thing. Somebody has wronged me. What do I want to do? And what does Christ call me to do? Hit the other one too, dude. That is to an individual. Does that mean I cannot bring charges against that individual? Oh, I, sh I sh no. You know, if, if, if I hit my wife, okay, let's go ugly. Let's go really ugly. If I hit my wife, should she just turn the other cheek and let me smack the other one? You, you go, <laughs> should I be arrested? Absolutely. Well... To do that isn't, isn't being bitter or wrathful or vengeful. It is taking somebody who is an ugly human being who needs justice brought to them and getting him off the street. That is called justice under the sun. That is what God calls for. But in our interpersonal relationships, if somebody steps on your toes, you're not going to have them arrested. It was a slight... If it is your husband or your wife who is regularly doing this, you might call it to their attention. You speak to them. You communicate. You have communication. But to have bitterness and wrath and malice, that is, there is no place for that. Bitterness, man, that's a great one. That will... That will Stick in your heart like those burrs to your shoes around here. Trying to get that off? Ow. You're going to hurt yourself somewhere else probably. So in Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, after he tells you to put off wrath, malice, slander, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Oh, by the way, since you are God's chosen one, holy and beloved, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Oh, by the way, you stumble too. You fail too. Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if someone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ Rule in your heart to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That whole section in Colossians 3 verses 12 through 17 comes right on the heels of don't do this, but do this. This is, this is the life that we should be living as Christians in light of verses 1 through 3 of Colossians chapter 3 where we set our minds on things that are above. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. The last one I want to just touch on, we'll, we'll call it a day, is covetousness. Covetousness. What is covetousness? Covetousness is idolatry. It is idolatry. What? Wanting something that God doesn't intend for you that isn't yours. Okay, good. I want what I don't have. I want something I don't have. Okay. So does that mean if I have an apartment, I shouldn't really want a house? Not necessarily. No. Again, you can, you can take everything and go, go completely off the 
you know, overpass there. Just don't have the house with somebody's wife in it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, it, if, if you, if in desiring that, you are not content with what you currently have, that's when it becomes idolatry. It's your focus, your every thought is on that. We will be content with these things. We will be content. It is a contentment. Am I content with what God has provided? I'm going to leave you with one verse here that should really put a stake in the heart of all covetousness. And it is in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. You do not ever need to be covetous. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Okay. God the Father so cared about you that he gave up God the Son for you. Okay, Paul's using this as you know, a, a true hyperbole. This isn't even an exaggeration. This is actual. God the Father gave up God the Son for us all. How will he, if he's going to do that, how will he not also with him, Christ, graciously give us all things? My God is the God of the universe. Why would I want baubles? And houses that are going to get torn down in 50 years. Cars that are going to get rusty and blow gaskets and get flat tires. They're things. God has given us these things to enjoy, but when I start getting greedy and covetous, I get my eyes off of him and on two things. Okay, it's not on my own heart, but I'm looking at things. Covetousness. Man, if I am sitting in a stew of darkness because I am covetous, oh, what a horrid place to be. So next week, I promise, promise, Scouts Honor will end next week. We're going to look at, we've already started into section three here. What does God provide for us? And then we'll end with some nuts and bolts practicality of, okay, I'm I'm here. Yes, I believe all of this truth that we've talked about. Now, what do I do to get out of here? What do I do to get out of here? Right. That's it.